following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. Our scriptural reading this morning will be from the book of Titus. I invite you to turn there as I read chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, in the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, not hospi- but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and convict those who contradict. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert the whole, ho- whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men may be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. Chapter 2. Dwayne asked me before uh, I came up, how do you want to be introduced? I said, well, as simply as possible. You know, I'm quite content, honestly, to be known as 
John's dad and Matthew's grandpa. And uh, I, I do thank you for uh, providing for them a church family in which they can be nurtured and discipled under the uh, very capable supervisorate of, of my good friend uh, Matt Postiff, who we've known for, uh, well, for a couple of decades now. So I consider him a very good friend. Book of Titus has long had a place of you know, a priority in my ministry experience. I teach at seminary at the, in Allen Park, and the faculty are frequently called upon not only to fill pulpits occasionally, but also uh, to, to serve as interim ministers for past churches without pastors for a, for a season of months or, or even longer sometimes. And the book of Titus uh, comes as close as anything in the New Testament to a manual for doing that, a set of instructions for an interim pastor. The Apostle Paul has already gathered a band of Christians on this lonely island of Crete. In the most unlikely of circumstances, uh, he was being transported as a prisoner from Judea to Rome. He is, uh, he is forced to winter there uh, uh, for a, uh, because, of the, uh, because of the season. And uh, he finds himself stranded here on this island and, uh, as a relentless evangelist, uh, shares the gospel with the people that are around him, the Cretans with which he rubbed shoulders during this time, and many found Christ. Uh, but spring came quickly, and he rather uh, swiftly was called away and was unable to organize these believers into churches. So he appointed his protege, Titus, to complete this work of church planting by overseeing, as we read uh, earlier here, the appointment of elders in every city. And the letter, the letter moves rather swiftly into a discussion of these qualifications for pastoral ministry. And we read these as well this morning. I do appreciate, by the way, the selection of, uh, of the reading to sort of set up uh, what we're preaching this morning. Uh, so there we have a treatment here, rather compact treatment, long, uh, shorter than the longer treatment in 1 Timothy, of the qualifications for a pastor. But a very valuable supplement to that uh, longer list, it provides a little bit of extra commentary and actually a couple of uh, additional points uh, to the detail, fills out some of the details of that longer list in, in Timothy. In the verses that follow, Paul offers a number of reasons why these qualifications are so important. He notes that there are already in this fledgling congregation a number of imposters that were among them who were causing trouble. We find here in verse 11 that they were subverting whole households or disrupting whole households. And so chapter 2 then offers some guidance for establishing stable households or families. He gives instructions, in turn, to five representative groups that were in uh, the church there in Crete. He talks to old men, young men, old women, young women, and then the staff of their servants, slaves, really, who did most of the work of maintaining the property, cleaning, caring for, and educating children, taking care of the livestock, and so on and so forth, okay? Most of the, uh, the folks that are in the early church would have been in that last category, too, the slaves. And so they found themselves all within these broader households. 
The instructions that Paul gives are somewhat simple, but extraordinarily difficult to keep. They're out of step with societal norms and expectations. And as time has passed, they have become even more out of step over the course of years. Paul tells young men to be dignified, steady, serious, to accelerate their maturity in an era when adolescence tended to be extended. Sound familiar? Women were told to mind their tongues and be more concerned with tending their homes than their social uh, social outlets and careers. Most startling of all, perhaps, is Paul's instructions to slaves. He tells them to be conscientious slaves, not agitating for freedom or civil rights, certainly not trying to tip the scales of social justice by pilfering or stealing from their owners. And, you know, this last bit is just startling to us. We live in a day where social justice is all the rage, right? And yet Paul tells these Christian slaves how they are to conduct themselves in an oppressive society. And it doesn't sound a whole lot like what we are being told is social justice. And this last bit mirrors Paul's instructions to slaves in 1 Corinthians 7, where he tells converted slaves not to worry about their miserable lot, but to carefully live out their lives as really good slaves, excellent slaves. And here, as in 1 Timothy, the goal is to live peaceable and quiet lives in which we can live out our faith in godliness and holiness and to have multiplied opportunities for the gospel. And so we're supposed to conduct ourselves in the way that is described here in Titus chapter 2, because that's the goal. And by living this way, verse 10 says, we can adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all respects. So to summarize here, chapter 2 up till this point, Paul tells us that if we successfully cultivate these Christian disciplines, which are out of step with the spirit of the age, we'll stabilize our families. And in fact, we'll stabilize all of our social structures, create multiple opportunities for the gospel. What could be simpler? And yet, as we look at our society and our own lives, We find it painfully obvious that very few people succeed in doing the things detailed in chapter 2 of Titus. We're tempted, even as believers, to say with the rest of the world, I can't possibly bring myself to do those things. Or worse, I really doubt even if I did those things, it would make any difference at all. And perhaps even now, you're saying, well, Paul's ideas, they're very quaint but they're, they're out of touch. Nobody could do those things today. And even if they did, it wouldn't make any difference at all. It would not produce the results that Paul seems to think they would. The contemporary situation, we tend to think, is, is, is much too complex. It's too progressive to respond favorably to solutions like Paul gives us in chapter 2 of Titus. And it's almost as though Paul sees his audience sort of peeling away in suspicion skepticism, and he starts verse 11 with an appeal to come back. Give one last chance to convince them. So he says, let me give you one more reason why this really can happen in your life. 
why your relationship with your spouse can improve, why your family can become more stable, why you can generate opportunities for the gospel by your habits at work, your actions, your reactions. This can happen, Paul says, in verses 11 to 14, and in fact, it must happen. And let me tell you why. Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in the present age, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our God, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Then Paul adds a personal note to Titus, speak these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one despise you. We're accustomed in the writings of the Apostle Paul to see him spend the first half of his books, his letters, uh, giving a theological lecture, and then the second half of the letter giving the practical implications of that more abstract first half. But he does this oppositely here. He reverses his practice and gives the theology after the practice. So he offers reasons for each of us to revisit the instructions in verses 1 to 10, why it is possible and why it is necessary to do these things, so that we, like Naaman of old, said, even though I don't see how this can possibly work, and even though it's going to look downright ridiculous to do this, I'm going to do what God says dipping myself in the Jordan River seven times because that's what God told me to do. So what are these compelling reasons that Paul offers for us to do what seems to be out of step and ridiculous and foolish in the world in which we live? Well, there's two very simple reasons. Number one, because the grace of God has appeared. Because the grace of God has appeared. You can and you must Make changes in your life described here in verses 1 to 10 because the grace of God has appeared in saving power that changes all that it touches. No exceptions. And if you have been a recipient of the saving grace of God, Paul tells us, you are not that same morally bankrupt person, that same failure-prone person that you were before you were saved. You can do all of these things, Paul says, because you're a new creature in Christ. You can change because God's grace has come. Now, before we can move to some of the implications of these verses... We need to address a theological question that pops up because of the wording of this verse. And perhaps you're even noting that I, 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 I'm not completely following uh, the English translation you have in front of you. And that's because there's a lot of uh, dissension as, as to how we are to translate verse 11. The verse actually says here, the grace of God has appeared saving all people. This is a difficult verse to, to translate because we all know, right, that God's grace hasn't saved all people. And so there have been a number of attempts here to translate this, and your, your translation is, a, is representative of one of those. But let's go through them in order. The one possibility that perhaps grammatically seems the most likely, and I say grammatically because theologically it's out, right, 
is that everybody will get saved. All people in the world eventually will get saved. Of course, this theory is theologically ludicrous based on the rest of the testimony of Scripture, which describes great blocks of men and angels even cast into the lake of fire. Not everyone will get saved. But grammatically, it is a possibility. But recognizing that it is theologically impossible that that's what this verse means, other translators have added explanatory words to the translations in order to make better theological sense of the verse. Your translation here says something like this, right? The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation or offering salvation to all people. The words bring or offer that might appear in your translation do not appear in your original Greek, but adding them seems to make a little bit better sense of the verse. But does it? Even this adjusted language does not seem at face value uh, to be true because many people do not hear about the grace of God that brings salvation. And secondly, and perhaps the most clinching argument here, is that the availability or offer of the gospel is really of no value in the flow of the argument. Remember, this does not just simply start a new section that is oblivious to the ten verses that come before. It gives us the reason why it is possible for us to do the things in verses 1 to 10. It says here, for. It gives a, it's, it's a because. You can do these things in verse 10 because the grace of God has appeared. And the, the offer of the gospel alone does not give any value, uh, energy for carrying out the difficult tasks uh, dis- uh, discussed here in verses 1 to 10. So as much as we might want this verse to say something about the extent of the atonement one way or the other, it actually probably does not. It requires us to add words and that aren't there, and it really doesn't make sense of Paul's argument. There are others, a third view here, uh, those committed to the doctrines of grace, for instance, is that Paul is announcing that the grace of God has appeared, saving all kinds of people. This is an established use of the term all. It does make some contextual sense. Uh, Paul has just listed five kinds of people who have received the gospel and who need the gospel, and the grace of God reaches every kind. Okay, But there's a fourth understanding of this sentence that I think makes even better sense. If I can uh, summarize it here. The grace of God has appeared, saving us all the way, thoroughly saving those who receives it, receive it. If I can use another text here, Hebrews 7.25, it saves us to the uttermost. It saves us all the way. And that seems to be what Paul is saying here. How is it possible for people to live out those impossible instructions in verses 1 to 10? These verses that seem to us so lofty, so out of reach, so very contrary to what our society tells us will work. Well, Paul says these instructions are hard. And for the world, they're ridiculous and hopeless, but not for you, because the grace of God has found you. The saving grace of God has rescued you. The saving grace of God has fixed you. No matter who you once were, no matter how hopelessly you have damaged your life over the course of years, and your relationships, 
No matter how deeply your life has been damaged and how deep the hole is that you have dug in your post-conversion life, the gospel has changed you and has made you capable of living the life that God expects. We talked in Sunday school about the double benefit of union with Christ. God has saved us in terms of taking care of our guilt problem with justification, but he's also regenerated us, made us new creatures in Christ, capable of carrying out the work of sanctification. And so Paul is saying here that the grace of God does not save all people distributively, but rather individually. He has saved you all the way. It saves the whole person. It just doesn't declare you righteous. It actually makes you a new creature in Christ capable of pleasing God. Now perhaps you look at me at this point and hear what I say and you respond, you know, Mark, you just don't get it. My spiritual life is in shambles. My family, it's a wreck. My Christian testimony at work, let's just face it, there isn't one. These ideals that you've painted here in verses 1 to 10 are so far out there that they're a dream, not an achievable goal for me. And what Paul would say right back is, no, no, no. It's you that don't get it. You have not yet fathomed the extent of the grace of God. You have not yet fathomed the power of the gospel. You have not yet caught sight of the life of God in the soul of man. So if you say that God can't change you, one of two things is true. You believe God to be a liar, because he says he can. Or perhaps you're not regenerate. And Paul says, if you have the grace of God has reached you, It saves you all the way. Now, it's true, of course, that the enabling grace of God does not render us immediately perfect. It would be a great thing. At least we think it might be a good thing. I think God has a different plan in mind, right? God seeks to perfect us gradually. And it says here that it teaches us, verse 12 says. It institutes something of a training regimen that, when rigorously followed allows us to progress in the Christian walk. So it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Some of your modern translations, if you have an NIV, it says, it teaches us to say no. Some of you are familiar with the the musical Fiddler on the Roof, right? You're familiar with the story. Uh, There's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an Orthodox Jew living in Russia during the uh, revolution there. And he's got three daughters, and he, one by one, is marrying them off. The first one uh, seeks to marry a, a poor fellow, a not very manly man, but he's a capable person. He's got a job. And so, you know, the dad sort of has a back and forth with himself and says, you know, uh, he, on one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, on the other hand, finally he says, okay, go ahead. You have my blessing. The second daughter makes another step. She seeks to marry a progressive-thinking Jew who doesn't, isn't in keeping with the traditions of the Jews, and so he has this other back and forth with his wrestling match with himself. On the one hand, on the other hand, on the one hand, 
On the other hand, and finally, he gives a little bit more grudging permission to his second daughter. But then the third daughter comes, right? Okay. The third daughter wants to marry someone who is not in the faith. And so he starts again on the same track of a back and forth. On the one hand, and then he says, no, there is no other hand. And I think that's exactly the sentiment that Paul is reflecting here. Okay? We need to say no to ungodliness. We might think there's a back and forth to be had here between the remnants of sin within us and the, and the new nature that, is, that, is, that, is, that, is, that is, should be dominating within our, in our own psyche. And we can't say on the one hand, on the other hand, we say no. No. We cannot live in ungodliness and worldly lusts. And so we find that there's this training regimen that causes us to say no and to say yes. Putting off and putting on. This is a theme that we find routinely through the Old Testament. We, we rather quickly uh, went through them in Sunday school this morning, but many of you weren't, weren't, uh, weren't there. You were elsewhere in the building here. But Romans 6, 1 to 14. All of us have been baptized into Jesus Christ, raised to walk in newness of life. We died to sin. Our old self was crucified. Therefore, say yes and no. So now, for these reasons, count yourselves dead, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey its evil desires. Don't offer any part of your body to sin as an instrument of wickedness. Rather, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, offering every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness because sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under law but under grace. Ephesians 4, you have been renewed in the spirit of your mind. You have put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, been created in righteousness and holiness. And you laid aside the old self. Therefore, gives us actually eight verses of instruction. Therefore, put off falsehood. Speak truth to your neighbor, because we're members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing, steal no longer. But rather work, doing something useful with your hands so that you can have something to share with those in need. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful in building up others according to their need so that it will benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, every form of malice, and be kind and compassionate one to another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3. You have laid aside the old self. You have put on the new self. And then he gives actually 13 verses of what you're supposed to do with it. Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived, but now you must and you can put them away. 
anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to one another. Why? Because you've put off the old self and put on the new with all of its practices. Therefore, as God's chosen people, you say no, but you also say yes. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and above all the other virtues, put on love. 2 Peter 1, you have become partakers of the divine nature. You have escaped the corruption that is in the world. And for this reason, using every effort, add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, and love. Here in Titus, the discussion is not so complete. It actually spills over into chapter 3. But the message is the same. You're not perfect. Not by a long shot. But neither are you what you once were. There's a lot of room in between that. Between totally depraved and perfect. And we're all on that in between. And we should be making incremental progress along the way. You are not what you once were. You are not that totally depraved person that was once so repulsive and odious in the eyes of God. The famous words of one stalwart of the faith, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in the other world. But still, by the grace of God, I am not what I once used to be. And while the lingering remnants of sin still grope for our souls, like so many hands in a zombie movie, Paul reminds us that we have been equipped by God to shrug off those hands, to break their grip, to fight off their relentless temptation. And God has placed within us a training regimen that equips us to do this better and more successfully day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And, and, that, and that's how we measure sanctification, right? Sinclair Ferguson wrote a, has written much on the topic of sanctification, says that we, we, tend, we, we ought to measure our sanctification in years rather than days. Measuring our sanctification in days can be very discouraging, right? Because yesterday was a bad day. But over the course of time and over the course of years, there ought to be the great satisfaction of looking back and saying, you know, I, I haven't arrived yet, but by the grace of God, progress is being made. And there's satisfaction in that because God is at work in us. So we have not only justifying grace, but also regenerating grace, enabling grace. It empowers and emboldens us to throw every bit of energy into the effort to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, he says in verse 12. Live self-controlled, sober, righteous, and godly lives in the present age. I think that that phrase there is important because the present age is contrary to this, right? Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. The saving, regenerating, enabling grace of God has made it possible for you 
to do those things in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. It enables you to be a Titus 2 woman. It enables you to be a Titus 2 man, and even, if it applies, a Titus 2 slave. But just as every training regimen has its moments of discouragement and despair, Paul realizes that this is not going to be all roses and butterflies, right? We all have seasons of frustration in which we obsess about the failures of the old life and about the painfully slow progress that we experience in this present age. We find ourselves prone to bouts of spiritual despair, even spiritual depression, that drain us of our spiritual vitality and leave us despondent. What solace do we have when God's grace seems too little? What hope does Paul's wretched man have in Romans chapter 7 who tries and tries and fails repeatedly? And we, always, we often identify with him, right? Well, Paul actually has something more. It's still a manifestation of grace, to be sure, but it's a refreshing manifestation of grace that perhaps our constant fixation of what Christ has done keeps us from seeing. What is it? Well, verse 13 tells us. We look back not only on what grace has appeared, but also to forward to a glory that shall appear. We are waiting for that blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great sa uh, Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the second grand bracing reason to go back and aspire to those lofty ideals that we see in verses 1 to 10. God's grace has appeared and glory is about to appear. Paul admits that our previous life was a wreck. And even the grace of God, as grand as it is, seems to take root slowly. We make painfully slow steps as we grow in this present life. But he reminds us in no uncertain terms that the end of grace is glory. Why should I live like a Titus II man or a Titus II woman? Because God's glory is about to appear. It's a grand and delightful prospect of which we all too easily lose sight in our workaday world. What greater motivation can a Christian possibly have as we see a world slipping ever deeper into the maw of depravity than this? The glory is going to appear. Jesus is going to come back in spectacular fashion, in power and glory, and vindicate the fact that we were living so awkwardly and backwardly following verses 1 to 10. He's going to validate our maligned, persecuted, feeble attempts to please him. Brother and sister, do not lose sight of this grand hope. There's no greater possible prospect upon which we may fix our mind's eye. Now please don't hear me diminishing what Christ accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. Surely we can't overemphasize that. His grace appeared. Without a doubt, the work of Christ on the cross and his historical triumph over the grave are crucial objects of our regular reflection. This is the ground of Christian motivation, the fountain of proper affections. But it is not the totality of the work of Christ, right? 
Paul insists that we look back not only to the arrival of the grace of God in the person of Christ in his first advent, but also we should look forward to the glory of God and the climax of our Christian walk when we stand in him complete, as the song says, right? This is the climax of our Christian walk. It's really the climax of all history. Without the promise of glory, the initial appearance of grace would ultimately prove incomplete. Now, normally in Scripture, the Christian's blessed hope is identified as the return of Christ, and there's no reason to think that Paul is abandoning this understanding here. There is, however, a, a bit of a nuance in his language here that sort of, uh, sort of gives us a, a little bit of a, 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 you know, perhaps a question mark in our minds, Okay. While Christ is certainly critical to verse 13, the accent of Paul's comments lie in the arrival of the glory of God and not just the arrival of the person of Christ. Commentators are rather active in trying to figure out this little anomaly, trying to discover whether the hope is the arrival of God and Christ or the arrival of God in Christ, but Wording the verses he has, Paul seems to be emphasizing not so much the arrival of the person, but the arrival of the glory that he brings with him. So Paul seems to be emphasizing what we sometimes call the glorification of the believer. He's he's emphasizing the effects of the arrival of Christ on the believer individually, and believers collectively. And so the motivation to appropriate behavior, such as is described here in verses 1 to 10, is not only that we shall see him, but also that we shall be like him. The glory comes in the person of Jesus Christ, and it results in glorification. We shall see him, and we shall be like him. And so we put on self-control and godliness and righteousness and each element of each section in verses 1 to 10 that applies most specifically to you because reaching this ideal described in these verses is the essence of glory. We are becoming now what we shall be hereafter. And that's the impetus to a holy life that Paul is stressing. That's why... Paul says in verse 14, Jesus saved us, right? Far too often, I think we envision Christ attempting to woo recalcitrant people uh, to him into the boat like fish uh, by any possible means and then celebrating a good day of fishing. But that's not, that's an incomplete picture. God is sovereignly selecting people, rendering them eager to follow him, right? People who are special, zealous for good works. That's the goal. To redeem us from lawlessness and to purify a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. In the famous words of Ephesians, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, not to land a pile of ragamuffin unsanctified rabble, but rather that he might sanctify her. having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself 
a glorious church, having neither spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing, so that we might be holy and without blemish before him. We are, in effect, preparing ourselves to be the bride of Christ, eager as any bride should be to make that day as perfect as possible for her devoted husband. How strange it would be if a woman on her long-awaited wedding day would wander into the church a bit late, dressed in a soiled T-shirt, old jeans, and flip-flops. That picture is disturbing, right? Sad. We might wonder whether the groom ought to reconsider his intentions. But here's the thing. We're prepping for the same thing, right? We're prepping for an event more significant than our earthly wedding day. We are preparing to be the bride of Christ, equipped with the knowledge that it is his fundamental desire to purify himself a people for his name's sake. What kind of people? A people who have a lifelong habit of scouring from our redeemed souls every vestige of lawlessness and ungodliness and cultivating a resilient zeal for good works. Be that kind of person, Paul says. Of course, we know that when Christ comes, he will find no one who has achieved perfection. And so on that last day, we will be wholly transformed completely into what we ought to be. And perhaps because our minds are still warped by the persistent vestiges of sin, we might imagine that this future act of glorification renders our present efforts unnecessary, unimportant. But there really could be no more gross miscarriage of theology or the grace of God, no more selfish a response to the grace that has appeared and the glory that is about to appear appear than this. We must persevere, Paul says, because this is the eager hope of God himself as he anticipates the grand day, this climax of history. We must give ourselves over to the pursuit of holiness because nothing pleases God more than this. We all live here with the oppressive realization that the depravity that we had before conversion took us very far from where God expects us to be. We all sit here with the realization that our sanctification is painfully slow, pockmarked by the scars of besetting sins with which we struggle monumentally but somehow don't don't seem to be able to overcome We sit here with the despair of reading these first ten verses of chapter 2 and falling way, way short of the ideal that God has for us in our Christian walk. But don't give up, Paul says. Because the grace of God has appeared and the glory of God is about to appear. And so get up. Dust yourself off. And commit afresh to the holiness and the godliness that God expects from you so that you can prepare for that grand day that we stand in him complete. Where we become the bride of Christ having neither spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing. Dust yourself off and commit afresh to being holy 
before God because the grace of God has appeared and the glory of God is about to come. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your grace this morning, the many manifestations of your grace, and we also uh, anticipate this grand expression of the grace of God that is about to appear, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask that you would hasten that day, even as John tells us in the end of Revelation. And Lord, uh, we all sit here, perhaps ruminating over the fact that there is sin in our lives. Uh, perhaps it's you know reared its ugly head time and time again this week, uh, this week past. And Lord, I ask that we would be reminded afresh of the grace of God that has made us capable of pleasing you and the glory of God that is the reward for faithful servants. And Lord, I ask that you would cause each one of us to get up again uh, and commit ourselves afresh uh, to the obedience that you expect from each one of us, we pray in your name. Amen.